what we did was we, we essentially negotiated, moved, downsized, shifted. It was the most joyously collaborative project I have ever had the pleasure of working on in my life. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Signe Nielsen, landscape architect and principal of MNLA, Landscape Architects out of New York. Signe joins us to speak with us today about her recent project for Little Island and a career of work on the New York waterfront. Signe, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Charles. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really lovely to see you again. Um, uh, you've had um, over the course of you know uh, parts of now five decades an extraordinary career of built work as a landscape architect and urban designer uh, in New York and further afield. Um, most recently, this past year, uh, we've seen the opening of this uh, extraordinary kind of singular project, this two and a half acre uh, maritime botanic garden uh, in the Hudson River called Little Island. Um, how did you get um, engaged in this kind of once in a lifetime project? Once in a lifetime it is. Uh, we had to compete for the uh, role of landscape architect. I mean, uh, Thomas Heatherwick was selected uh, by um, the donor. And then uh, once the project got some legs under it, literally, um, they needed to put together a team. So they came to New York and uh, there had been some interviews set up with, I think, three of us maybe, and uh, we were selected. <laughs> it was a miracle. <laughs> and mir miraculous as it was. So you mentioned Thomas Heatherwick and the Heatherwick Studio based, on, based in London. Um, and of course, for a, a project of this kind, the, the landscape, you know, commission, you know, that that's a, it's a major piece of this of this new this new typology of, of public park. Um, um, now, it opened in 2021 it was eight, nine months ago now, like spring, May, May of 21. And since that time, um, I know it's become quite the destination. In fact, that's the question that I most often you know, encounter from colleagues and friends is, you know, have you seen it yet? And so I want to just begin before we get into the, the meat of the project itself, just to ask you to reflect a little bit on the, the experience of the opening and the reception. On, on the one hand, it is, as, as you say, it's a kind of singularity of this little you know, kind of jewel set in the, in the water. And at the same moment, opening it in the context of the pandemic obviously must have affected it somehow. But so how, how have you perceived the, re the reception of the project? <laughs> well, I'll tell you that, um, and it does speak to the pandemic. Um, the project was, was being planted um, while uh, all throughout COVID. We, we actually started in um, March. We had about a three-week hiatus when all construction stopped, and then we restarted. And I was I was on site every day from the first of April through the first of April, twenty twenty one. And so um, I I uh, I was uh, it was it was suggested that I might want to be there at six o'clock in the morning when they threw open the gates and welcomed welcomed in the public. So uh, I, I was there and there was already a, a good sized crowd of many of them runners, which is a very popular thing to do in the morning. Um, 
And I was walking around and I was thinking to myself, who are there, all these people? This is my place. <laughs> so I have to say at first I was, I was a bit, um, I wasn't sure I was ready to share it, but um, no, in, in all uh, seriousness. Um, what I've mostly enjoyed is um, watching the various um, types of people move through the park at different times of day and night and weekends and weekdays. So as I said, there's, there's quite a robust uh, group of um, joggers, uh, people sort of doing alternative Stairmaster activities uh, from about six in the morning to maybe eight. Then there's a sort of a group of, of people who just kind of come and read the newspaper on their on whatever. Uh, then there comes the uh, sort of caregivers with really young children who are not in school, uh, and they might do some of the activities. Then, curiously, there's sort of a senior lunch hour, which I've observed, where um, it seems like a lot of seniors come and meet their friends and, and hang out and take a stroll. So it's just it's that kind of cycle that, um, you know, and then after school, kids come. Uh, evening, if there are performances, that's another vibe. Um, and, and you know, for, for a lot of the months that it was open, we, we had shut down our borders. So there were not very many tourists on the pier. So it has not been inundated. And is that opening of, um, first and foremost, by, you know, residents, you know, civilians, people that are there to, to experience it as a public park, is that typical for the opening of, of uh, other public parks in New York, in your experience? Oh, yes. I mean, um, usually, I mean, the thing that was kind of beautiful about this is that most of the public parks I do, there is a, there is a ceremony. Uh, and it's all about politicians thanking each other and themselves for um, their incredible foresight. Um, in this particular case, there was no such thing. Literally, they just opened the gate, and the woman who's the executive director of Little Island greeted everybody. She came walking down the South Bridge, a uh, very kind of dramatic moment, threw open the gates, threw up her arms, and said, welcome. And it was that it was so beautiful and there were no speeches. What's extraordinary is the relative amount of topographic art that's going on there. I mean, not just landscape architecture, but structure underneath as well. And so was that something that was clear in the initial conception of the park or was that something that developed over time? That was part of the initial conception, without a doubt. And in fact, the aspiration um, was for the southwest corner, which is the highest of the four corners, to be actually 10 feet higher than it is today. Um, but we simply could not achieve universal accessibility uh, in the available length. And so um, it was reduced to 62 feet instead of 72 feet. But yes, from the, from the outset. But I also have to, I mean, there, there is a, there's a reason for that topography other than just uh, sort of visual interest. And that is, to lift by lifting the southeast and the southwest corners, we allow the low angle of the morning and afternoon sun to penetrate deep under the pier for the, you know, uh, uh, habitat. You mentioned the, you know, accessibility, uh, and a part of what I've appreciated about the project and coming to know it is this kind of the the tension or the dialectic between, on the one hand, 
uh, kind of the extremity of, you know, 62 feet in the air and the kind of verticality and the interiority of different spaces in what is still a relatively, you know, small project. At the same moment, it is completely accessible and by various, you know, types of people, as you've, as you've mentioned. Um, I think quite a lot of attention has been paid to this topic you raise about building out over the water. I mean, building on waterways, you know, notoriously difficult in any context, certainly in the context of the multiple jurisdictions. Um, what should our listeners, you know, be thinking about as they see, you know, the, the build out over the former piers uh, in the Hudson River on the west side of Manhattan, like what was the thinking there in terms of the, the complexity of the regulatory environment? Uh, and also, uh, clearly, this was a collaboration, not just with Heather work, but also a very complex multidisciplinary set of, you know, engineers and others on the team. So what would be interesting to think about in terms of, you say, lifting this bowl, right, the shape of the petals to allow sunlight onto the, the water itself? Uh, was that regulatory and engineering environment an easy one to work in? No, it was not, but um, I, I, we may discuss more about other waterfront projects subsequently, but um, I think that the, the, the most important thing to realize is that the, the square footage of the pier of Little Island replaces to the square foot the amount of shade that we removed from the former Pier 54. Um, and that is, the, that is a requirement of the State Department of Environmental Conservation. So this... this um, uh, while we changed the shape of, of, the, of the total square footage, we did not increase it from what the shade that had been removed. And that, that, that I think is the most important thing that this didn't just, we didn't just go, wow, what a cool idea to build a pier here. Um, it, was a, it was a replacement. Then there was a concern that a square shape would cast a deeper and larger amount of shade than a skinny rectangle the traditional shape of the pier. Um, but the combination of, of lifting the corners combined with lifting the whole thing so far out of the water actually produced less shade than a low-lying um, typical pier that is attached to the bulkhead. That's, there's lots of other regulations, but that's the most important thing, I think, for people to understand. Now, in addition to the the public openness, I'm I, I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm led to believe by some accounts in the press that the um, Little Island is also available for certain kinds of performance and other programmed events. Is that true? That's true. Um, the the way the way um, the donor really speaks about the pier is an integration of uh, nature and art. Um, and the way we've kind of come to really think about it now after watching it function for some months is really um, nature, art, and community, because community has become a very big part of the type of programming that is done and the participants in the programming. So, um, you know, right from the outset, there, there were um, three areas where you could have a performance. There's starting with the smallest, the very intimate, what we call Glade, which is on the south. Um, the next largest being the, the true amphitheater um, on the west. And then the large open uh, plaza, uh, which, which could, and we've modeled it, um, 
uh, hold a, an enormous number of people, like 3,000, if you include uh, on the hardscape as well as on the slope and lawn. But, uh, and so this, this uh, season, they, they did do um, a fair amount of programming in the, in the intimate uh, amphitheater, a glade, um, and, uh, and a certain amount of performances, uh, uh, both uh, well, dance, music, various orchestral things, tap dancing, salsa dancing, all kinds of wonderful uh, activities in, uh, in both of the uh, performance areas. And that's what I mean about, you know, really engaging um, the community. A number of the artists and residents were from uh, uh, both the senior housing, West Beth, if you know that place, um, uh, as well as um, some of the local schools. It, it, it's, it's, uh, there, was a, there was a gentleman named Michael um, who really worked for about a year before the park opened to make sure that, that, the, that the programming was reflective of this part of Manhattan, which is not what a lot of people think it is, which is just that veneer of sexy buildings along the waterfront. There are, there are deep stretches of public housing um, and, um, and affordable housing just behind that veneer. And walkable, I mean, presumably the catchment, you know, the walkable catchment, as you, as you alluded to, would be, you know, first of all, an extraordinary, you know, volume of people and also a diverse group of people in different circumstance and different uh, contexts. Um, I mentioned in the open, I think you've referred to it as a maritime botanical garden, and I'm struck by in the course of 2.4 acres, um, 40 species of trees and plants. I mean, that's an extraordinary, but just kind of number to manage, but equally an extraordinary kind of flourishing in a way in the context of a relatively, again, small footprint of a public park. Um, tell, tell us about that, the decision, first of all, to, to diversify in that way. Um, you've mentioned something about the different kinds of environments, these kind of different microclimates and uh, different, you know, contexts. Um, t tell me about the, the decision, the kind of species specific decision. Obviously, this is a place in which the, the, the botanical diversity and richness is a part of the experience. Um, and is that something that uh, was exceptional to this project? Or is that the kind of thing that you've tended to in your, in your other engagements on the New York waterfront? No, I would say it was particular uh, to this project for a, a couple of reasons. One is when we started, we started um, uh, kind of mapping the topography uh, and the slope, the gradient. And we realized that there were uh, almost 40% of the park is fundamentally inaccessible um, to anyone who might choose to walk down the slope. So the idea... Um, that you could somehow add more turf and there would be more place for people really wasn't working out. Um, and so we did a comparison of, of all the other piers in Hudson River Park because ultimately they are the underlying property owner here. Um, and uh, uh, for the most part, the sort of inaccessible landscapes, the parts you, you don't walk into, um, are, are maybe only 15 to 20 percent of, of the total footprint of a, of a given pier. We're looking at here 45 percent 
of the peer is actually planted um, and and therefore inaccessible. So that is a that is a huge um, that's a huge difference from a, a typical park and typical peer, and it, it's driven by by the by the topography. Um, we needed to retain those slopes. So then again, those slopes, because of their orientation, very much to the sun, very much away from the sun, north, west, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, I wanted to capitalize on, uh, on developing a plant palette that was calibrated to the combination of um, uh, solar aspect, wind, and slope. And then also, of course, thinking about there's a couple of views that are not so great, and then a couple of views that are incredibly great. So that's also um, factored into it, which gets more into sort of how I choreographed people's roots to the park, but just sticking to plant material. Um, so that was um, that was kind of the the, the basis for how the uh, plants were selected. Um, but I will say that. There are about there are forty different species of trees, but there are three hundred different species of grasses and perennials. Um, and the purpose there, um, at sidebar, we were doing a uh, a research paper with a an intern regarding um, intraspecies diversity, and um, she made a very strong case. Uh, about why there is value in, in interspecies diversity. So that got me thinking that, you know, what if I planted, um, you know, seven or eight different cultivars of panicum um, or echinacea, natives, in other words. So I did that um, just as kind of a test. Um, we don't get me wrong. This this landscape is not 100% native by a long shot. It's roughly 50% native, and roughly 50% not. Um, but it, it that has been something that we're going to track very carefully is whether um, certain species are attracted. So far, we've seen quite a lot, which is very exciting. So I don't know. I was motivated by about 1,500 different things. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the idea that all of that intelligence that you've wrought is on top of this extraordinary kind of structural conceit, right? So, so you know, the the entire project um, is built on top of these uh, precast concrete pylons, these kind of structural columns that are kind of driven as piles into the into the, the riverbed, and that 130 some of these kind of pedal shaped structures support the entirety of the park. Um, uh, a part of what's interesting about that is it enables the solar performance that you mentioned, the kind of different elevations, but it also produces a structural condition, which is not obvious or linear. You know, there is an order, but it's a fairly complex order. Uh, and in that regard, there is a kind of um, mass customization, you know, some 132 different concrete pedals or piles or pots all of them in a way coming from a pattern based on some 40 different formworks. Is that something that was, you know, there from the beginning of the project? And how did you encounter that as a, as, how did you think about that as a landscape architect joining the team? Actually, the early, early um, sketches, uh, well, of, of the Heatherwick studio, every single one of those pots was unique. 
And needless to say, that was untenable um, from a cost perspective. Optimistic, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> They're always optimistic. Um, I uh, uh, so uh, I have to also credit another really significant firm on the project, and that is Arup. Arup were the structural engineers, in addition to mechanical, electrical, and plumbing. Um, and uh, so they they set uh, about trying to rationalize the the Cairo pentagram form. Uh, and uh, create a situation where, in fact, there only needed to be 39 different forms that could generate 132 different shapes. And um, it is, it is uh, you know, a miracle of structural engineering. It is an absolute miracle. Um, and, you know, where I, I was just fascinated to watch how this uh, process happened, um, but where it impacted me personally, or uh, landscape architects, um, is the load on the piles. Because each pot, it, it, well, all the pots are tied together with a structural slab, so the entire thing is, a, is one seismic unit. But uh, uh, the, the point is that that um, roughly 400 square foot area of one pentagram can only take a certain amount of load based on the pile. And each one of those has a different pile capacity, a load capacity. And that was a painful process, uh, not because we disagreed, but because it was just painstaking um, to, to go through uh, the soil depth required to support the trees, healthy trees, uh, and not overload the piles. And then not at the same time compromise the uh, profile uh, of the of the perimeter that that Heatherwick was so um, focused on. So it was a three way, um, three dimensional uh, conversation that went on for a year uh, in order to finally resolve load, elevation, trees. And in that, you mentioned the profile. Uh, you also clearly bring a, you know an interest and a concern for both the quality, but also the the quantity, the volume of soil to support the the tree the tree the trees themselves. Um, were there moments where um, you weren't able to realize aspects of the projects that you had hoped to? Were there asp or there you mentioned this collaboration between Arup the engineers, Heatherwick Studio, and 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 your own team? Of course, that strikes me from the outside is something that's been a successful integration. It's unlike uh, really any other project I can think of in recent memory. And that strikes me as successful in the face of it. But from the point of view of a landscape architect and advocating for a certain volume of soil and the supporting of a certain you know, tree canopy or tree communities, were there aspects that were um, not fully realized or, or did you feel ultimately uh, fulfilled in the project? <laughs> I'll say that the first time, so we, we had a three-dimensional model we modeled all the root balls of the different calipers that we were hoping to install. And um, uh, I would say 80% uh, of them did not have a sufficient soil depth. <laughs> we have a plan that this shows all red root balls. <laughs> that was early on. That was early on. And so what we did was we, we essentially negotiated, moved, downsized, shifted, you know, it all, it all worked out, but you know, every 
every time we moved a big tree, we may have to move the stair or we have to put in another sheet pile wall or it was it was a a big knock on effect for every move that anybody made on the pier, you know, whether it was, you know, Arab plumbing people or us or, or Heatherwick or whatever. So it was a, it was the most collaborative and joyously collaborative project I have ever had the pleasure of working on in my life. We have become very close friends. We've remained close friends. And it, it is really deeply heartwarming to me that we all grew to respect each other, trust each other. Um, you know, if I, if I really put my foot down, which I don't do very often, they listen to me. And, you know, I had to be respectful of, of where I thought I could put my foot down in order to achieve what I thought was the best for the project. But at the end of the day, we it was a truly a collaboration we would we would we would come to agree with each other just through conversation but the one thing i do want to get out there before we might change subject is the fact that i never ever would have designed a project like this without the commitment of the donor to maintain it uh, uh for 20 years and potentially forever uh, through uh, uh, private funding, so that is that is fundamentally important for people to understand that that this is um, not a, a whimsical idea, but it's one that I, I I move forward with with the guarantee that the donor would support it. I do want to talk to you about maintenance. Um, you mentioned, you know, planting in, in early 21. Um, we're here in, in early 22. And I know we're all looking forward to the growth and evolution and the competition between species and the kind of maturation of this, as I'm sure you and your team are. Um, I'm interested to ask you about that. Like, first of all, how do you imagine or how might you think about the change of this place as it matures as a landscape uh, before we get to maintenance? And then secondly, um, what scheme is in place to maintain it over some period of time? So I would say that the, the park is uh, overplanted. Normally, as a landscape architect, I, uh, I, I select about three years out for a, a landscape to, re it's certainly the ground plane, not, not necessarily the trees, but the, for the ground plane shrub layer to achieve a feeling of maturity. Uh, and then the trees, depending on how, how large they are. The donor said to me, Signe, I want this to look perfect on opening day. So I said to him, well, you know I'm going to way over plant this if that, if that is your request, and that we're going to have to cull um, and maybe we'll even open a nursery or give have a huge plant giveaway every autumn or something. Um, so we haven't started culling yet, but I would say in another year or two, we're going to have to cull. I mean, we're thinking to probably donate the plants to other other places in Hudson River Park since, you know, they're, they're sort of um, the, the leaseholders. I mean, they're, they're the owners of the, of the lease. Um, and there are plenty of places and they're underfunded. And so I think that's what we're going to do. Um, so we will, we will have to call the perennials and grasses. Uh, we can always move them around if, 
you know, there's an area that's not doing very well and we can just sort of borrow from one part of the garden and stick it in another part of the garden. Um, uh, the trees, you know, people have asked me a lot, like what, how large do you think these trees are going to get? And, you know, I've given them the best shot I can, 2,000, 3,000 cubic feet of soil, uh, a lot of horizontal space to um, stretch out, not depth necessarily, but horizontal. Um, and we'll see. I mean, I, I think the wind is going to keep them somewhat um, shorter than normal. I did walk up and down Hudson River Park 100,000 times and uh, took note of the trees that were doing particularly well. Also, we designed other parts of Hudson River Park too, but it, it's, you know, small leaves, um, less mass to the wind, not densely branched. Those are some characteristics of, of, of trees that, that do well. So at Little Island, there, there is a not-for-profit organization um, that is uh, responsible for managing the uh, landscape maintenance, uh, what they call uh, visitor experience and programming. And the uh, gardening crew, because I'm sure some of your listeners might want to know, there are three gardeners uh, and they are managed by a head of horticulture um, who uh, works uh, for Little Island. Um, I think ultimately they may bring those gardeners in-house, so to speak, but right now the, the crew that is gardening are, are the same crew that did the installation because all of the plant material is still under a warranty. So that, that kind of made the most sense. Um, I get to walk the park uh, once a week with the head of horticulture and the gardeners. And so uh, it's a great opportunity for me to be forced <laughs> um, to see the fruits or failures of my labor. Uh, I'm interested in um, the other other projects around um, around the, the New York waterfront. Um, uh, you know, I think our, our our listeners may be familiar with a, a range of those projects. You've been engaged on the East River Esplanade um, for some time. You've done work on the Hudson River side, including the Hudson Square Streetscape Master Plan. I'm wondering how in addition to being this kind of singularity of a project, how do you think of Little Island and what it shares or what it might not share with some of the other projects you've been engaged in? Because you, you and your, your colleagues at MNLA have been engaged in the public realm, especially on the waterfront in New York for, for, for a long time now. Well, I think that, you know, way back in the mid nineties, our firm in collaboration with what is today called QRP, Clinton Rothschild and Partners, did the master plan for um, Hudson River Park when it first was an idea. And what we, what we did was come up with a, a strategy basically where each community board, of which there are three in this five mile length, would get a certain uh, number of, of um, facilities and amenities that are neighborhood based. And then there would be a certain number of facilities and amenities that are regionally um, allocated. And so Pier 54, which is the now Little Island, was always designed, um, always thought of as being a performance pier. At the time it was um, remote and it still actually is from residential, the noise doesn't matter. Um, it was a, you know, it was a big flat deck um, 
that we wanted to keep a flat deck to sort of preserve the history of the passenger ship era and kind of celebrate that. So um, that that's kind of um, so so that's why the sort of program evolved for um, a little island. It was it really stems from that master plan, you know, decades ago. Now it was never envisioned that it would look like this, of course. Um, but I think actually Hurricane Sandy uh, had a lot to do with uh, why the pier is at least the uh, initial elevation that it is and why it's not connected to the bulkhead. And that's very important because the bulkhead is, is way in harm's way. Um, and, and so, the these bridges as you call them and that's what they call them too but they're not really bridges uh take you up about 10 feet so that you are well above future sea level rise and and storm surge so i'd say hurricane sandy had an influence and so what i would say looking to the future is that we do have to come up with a way that we um we build these new piers uh, or outboard with wherever we are, someone might be working in a way that is that is resilient, um, but that has an immediate impact on uh, the the traditional access and the elevation of that public walkway uh, connection to the inland streets, whatever. I know. Uh, in recently, you know, the kind of in the context of uh, Superstorm Sandy and in the wake of the past decade or more, uh, East River Park has really been a kind of focus point as a kind of case study about the, on the one hand, the, the, the importance of reconciling this tension that you point to on the one hand, the importance of, you know, building some defense mechanisms, um, you know, increasingly moving to both green and gray infrastructures, but at the same moment, also not alienating or separating, you know, communities from the waterfront and the public amenities that they've enjoyed. And in the context of a place like East River Park, of course, you know, generations of people have enjoyed, you know, mature shade trees and sports and recreation. And at the same time, of course, there is this urgent desire to uh, build greater resilience with respect to future and increasing storm events. So, do you, you know, do you are, are you optimistic about that kind of work going forward, or what's your view on that, Sydney, in terms of the the challenges that we see in terms of responding to something like the scale of Sandy? I've thought about this a lot, and I've come up with a couple of sort of dramatically bad scenarios. So, scenario one is. Uh, we build a wall effectively around our city. And whether that wall is an elevated esplanade, um, the point is you can't see the water, that it is, it is elevated, it forms a, a level of protection, um, but uh, we, we, we've just really in the past 30 years have come to understand that we are an island again, and that we have a waterfront that we can enjoy again, and if we seal ourselves off from that, I'm worried, first of all, that people will have a false sense of security and just say, oh, well, I don't need to worry about climate change anymore. We're fine. You know, and that I, I don't like that idea. I, not the visual is just a small piece of it. I don't like the, the mentality that could develop if we if we wall ourselves off from danger, because I first of all, I don't believe that we can. Um, 
that's number one. The other scenario on the flip side is that, um, you know, uh, we have 520 miles of coastline and about 130 of those miles are parkland. And what's going to happen to that parkland with sea level rise? How many acres of parkland are, are just going to get swallowed up initially by kind of nuisance flooding and eventually by um, uh, being succumbing to higher water? And so those are the two ends of the spectrum that I am trying to balance. And, um, and, I, and I think I, I have to say that every project I work on is kind of trying to balance it a different way. Uh, and East River Park that you just mentioned is sort of splitting the baby. I don't know if that's the right analogy, but whatever. It's, it's, it's knocking down all the trees that are there. It's raising the park up out of nuisance flooding. And it is also building a wall on the inland side, not on the water side. So from within the park, you'll still be able to see the water. From outside of the park, by the way, you will not. Um, so, and, and then, <laughs> then the other thing that's kind of completely crazy, but maybe not crazy, is the idea that you, since we cannot predict uh, you know, beyond about 2050, what will happen with, with um, global warming and what will happen to our sea level, speed of sea level rise. These things are being built to be added onto, right? We can add another 16, uh, five feet uh, onto this wall. Uh, we're not gonna raise the park elevation another five feet, but you could raise the wall another five feet. So, you know, is that the wave of the future, which is, you know, be optimistic about sea level rise and then just add as, as we continue to screw up the world? I, I don't really know. Signe, so in addition to your, um, in addition to your career as a practicing landscape architect and urban designer and your role as an educator and really as a kind of civic leader around these issues, uh, you've also um, served as president of the Public Design Commission in the city of New York. Um, tell us, what, what does that role entail uh, and what kinds of uh, subjects does that um, read you into? Well, the Public Design Commission was started in the late 1800s. Um, and the role of it is to oversee and to select works of art, public art. Um, so, of course, in the Beaux-Arts period, you can imagine what that was. And it has evolved tremendously uh, over, uh, over time. The other thing is that the Design Commission has aesthetic voice in any project that is built with public funding on public land. So that can mean everything from um, including leased, uh, it's public land that is leased to private individuals. So we therefore do review uh, certain types of housing developments or mixed use developments. We review, for example, all libraries, firehouses, um, uh, emergency medical facilities, uh, police shooting ranges, uh, obviously all public parks. Um, all kinds of crazy things. A Department of Environmental Protection, we review their pumping stations. We even review their dams upstate because those are owned by New York City to protect our future water supply. So it's a, it's a wild bunch of, 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 of typologies. And it is 
endlessly fascinating to me um, what what is um, under the jurisdiction of the city of New York. Fantastic. Reaches as far as the uh, as far as the reservoirs and beyond. Um, I know that this past year um, there was quite a conversation, as there has been across our culture, about monuments, monument removal, and whose history are we commemorating? Um, and the Public Design Commission, uh, as I understand it, voted unanimously to remove uh, the statue of Thomas Jefferson, uh, of course, you know, notoriously slaveholding Thomas Jefferson, from the City Council chambers. Tell us about that decision and the context in which that statue will now be interpreted. Any um, project as as um, sensitive and, and um, highly charged as this one, uh, we put on a public hearing, which means that anybody uh, can testify. And so the, the hearing started out with three members of the city council testifying as to why they felt the statue should be removed. And they talked about um, how the city council will be more than 50 percent black and people of color and that it uh, was offensive to them to to be in the same room making legislative decisions uh, being stared down at um, or stared down to by Thomas Jefferson and they requested that it be removed from the city council chamber now Thomas Jefferson has wandered around city hall for quite a while he's been in various different rooms um, and so uh, we said that um, we would like to consider, but we, we agreed right there on the spot uh, unanimously that we would remove, um, but we needed another couple of months to figure out where would be the best um, place to put him because we wanted it to be public just like it is today. No entrance fee, uh, but a place that would interpret it. And so, the, um, uh, the New York Historical Society uh, has agreed to put it in their library. And the library uh, is accessible, it's free, uh, and it also uh, brings a lot of school children uh, on a regular basis. Some 200,000 kids go through it on, a, on an annual basis. So it was on the, it was on the basis of that, essentially, uh, I feel as if I kind of set a policy, which is that uh, works of art that are in the public realm that are that are owned by the city of New York uh, need to remain if they are to remain. I mean, I will say that there was a piece of art, a, a sculpture to a, a gynecologist who used black women as guinea pigs. He was removed and put, you know, uh, he was not melted down, but it was just about you know, as dramatic as that. So it really depends on the piece. Um, but it, uh, it is very challenging. The emotions are so strong that it, it's really kind of am amazing. I mean, I have gotten death, death threats for this. Um, and uh, kind of it's, after serving on the commission for 13 years, all of a sudden I'm kind of <laughs> a villain. Are there mechanisms in place for for conversations about other you know problematic works of art in the city holdings? Well, uh, the the prior administration, the recently outgoing administration, um, uh, brought together a, a very interesting group of individuals, from historians to architects to artists, to to talk about uh, all the the city's collections and which pieces 
were really problematic. And they sort of categorized the pieces into levels of intervention from outright removal, like the doctor I mentioned before, to those that need interpretation, uh, those that might need, um, uh, might benefit from additional pieces around them so that it not looked like there was a single hero in this event, that there were actually, you know, a, a broader spectrum. of. So it's a whole sort of a tier, tiers of uh, intervention. Um, so that we are, we as the design commission, and that is very much the collective, we have got to work, have got to work through this, but there's also, that's the, that's kind of on paper. And then there's the reality, which is individuals who, or groups of individuals who say, I can't take this anymore. This has got to go. So um, we just also relocated the Theodore Roosevelt statue in front of the Museum of Natural History, where, you know, at his feet, there's a, you know, a Native American, and it, it's just unbelievable. So that's being gifted, re, and, 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 let's see, on loan, it's going back to the Roosevelt family uh, to be put on public display in a national park. But it's, a, it's not giving it back, it's long-term loan, because we cannot deaccession the collection. And is the city of New York um, acquiring? They are, absolutely. They, they aren't acquiring um, as in purchasing, but um, there are many, uh, every, every public project over a certain amount of money has a percent for art program. So yes, the, the collection grows and grows and grows. Well, this strikes me as both, you know, timely and uh, among the, the the more urgent, you know, pressing questions facing our culture today. Um, thank you for your service in that regard, and um, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Charles. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.